Y'all, good morning. Uh, happy Sunday. Good to see you all. Okay, I guess not. You guys are all asleep. Do we need to get some? There's coffee in the back. We're here for you all. Uh, man, as Pastor Isaac just talked about, we are closing out this series that we've been in since uh, Easter, where we've been looking at the first Christians, really the first 300 years, who they were and how they were perceived by the Roman world. And one of the things that we just continually come back to is the fact that for Christians, the world that, that faith first emerged within, Christians were perceived as being different and more just than different, dangerous to the world around them. As one Roman author described Christianity as an extravagant and perverse superstition. The earliest Christians were a peculiar people that were met with all kinds of, on a daily basis, ostracism and disdain, even physical aggression. And as history tells us, even death, even martyrdom. And this peculiar nature of the Christian faith is perceived and seen in, well, just one place, is the earliest depiction of the cross. The first depiction that we have historically of Jesus on the cross uh, is dated to the first, somewhere in the first to third century. And it is not pulled out of a mural or a stained glass window from within a church building. No, the first historical depiction that we have of Jesus on the cross comes to us as graffiti scratched into plaster on a wall in Rome. It's called the Aleximenos Graffito. You'll see it behind me. Aleximenos named not for its author, but its subject. At the center of the portrait, you'll see uh, some scribbling, some words right there. Uh, Aleximenos Sebete Theon, or Aleximenos worships his God. You see young Aleximenos there with his arm raised in worship, not just to a man being crucified, what would have been an execution form for the lowest of humans, for the worst of criminals. But you might see something particularly um, peculiar about the man on the cross, and that is that he has the head of a donkey. The earliest depiction that we have of Jesus on his cross was the depiction of Jesus as the Romans saw him, to quote one Roman author, that crucified jackass. So this was the world in which Christianity emerged, a world that the faith of Aleximenos was seen as peculiar. The Christians were seen as, as idiots, as freaks on the wrong side of history and destined to over history simply fade away with their wor weird worship of this Palestinian Messiah figure. And yet history tells us that though peculiar they were, that they did not fade away. They did not simply uh, um, um, just plateau even within their faith. But within three centuries, the Christian faith, the worship of the God of Aleximenos, the crucified Jesus, would not fade away or plateau, but rapidly grow. Ultimately overturning the Roman Empire, ultimately uh, changing world history, ultimately being the ethical foundation that we still live and breathe in today. This morning as we're closing out our series, Peculiar, The People of God and the Ethics of Easter, where, as Isaac said a moment ago, we've been looking at the distinctives of the first Christians. What set those first Christians apart? How were each of those an implication of the resurrection of Jesus in Easter? And then the greater question of how can we recover? How can we recapture these for ourselves today? In our final week today, what we're going to be looking at is uh, that last distinctive. Really, the, the last distinctive that brings all of the ones that we've looked at so far together the last distinctive that carried the first Christians through the highs and many, many lows of their lives. If you'll turn or tap 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, 
Today, to do just that, we're going to be looking at a letter to one of these many little peculiar communities of Jesus' followers, the Church of Thessalonica. And so when you get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, if you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, we also have it behind me here. Uh, for those of you that don't have your, your Bibles or your you know, phone app, batteries low or whatever. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The letter opens. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for God, the faithfulness of um, Paul and Silvanus, of Timothy, of Alex Amenos, that God, we are uh, in, uh, today standing and walking in an inheritance of um, God, your people being faithful throughout their generations. We pray that today uh, we might take a step to take a deep breath of what it might mean for us to play our part in that story. Uh, be with us. Would you speak uh, to our hearts today? God, would you f- help us to find a resolve that comes through the work of what you've done? And here we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. And as you do, uh, we'll begin this morning with a little bit of an exercise. If you're like me and you can't think without closing your eyes, uh, you can close your eyes. But I just want you to kind of ponder the question, how do you want to be remembered? And, and not just like when you die, like right now, when your friends, when family members, your coworkers think of you, what would be the one word that you would wish would define you? Any, any offerings? Anybody want to be vulnerable and honest here today? Joyful. Joyful, okay. Maybe one or two more. I will start calling on people. <laughs> kind. kind, joyful, and what was the last one? Authentic. Authentic, all right, good. Good, yeah, so we all have very easily words that would come to mind, and you see how they're a little bit different depending on our personality and the way that we're wired, but all the same is that like there is something within us that, man, there is some driving conviction that I want to be that kind of a person, and not just from my perspective, like what I see in the mirror as being a kind person, but remembered by others as being that way. To take it another step would be the kind of question, how would you want collective church to be remembered? As people think about this community, as people think about, you know, what happens on Sundays when we as a people gather, our neighborhood dinners, your discipleship groups, what kind of words would you want to come to mind? You see, what we just read here for Paul, when he remembered the Thessalonian church, there were not one, might be cheating a little bit, but three things that came to mind. Three things that when he remembered these, these, you know, this tiny new little church in the big city of Thessalonica, these are the main things that came to mind. These three distinctives that stuck out. If you look with me in verses uh, three, 
we find his answers there. Remembering before God, the first two, your work of faith and your labor of love. These first two serve, I mean, as good a summary as any for what we've been looking at over the past few weeks since Easter, the distinctives of the early church, the peculiar way of life that was rooted in a work of faith and allegiance to Jesus and a, a labor of love, a deep commitment to loving others. As a reminder, for those of you that haven't been with us, or just as a reminder, you'll see behind me on the next slide, just kind of what these distinctives have been for the past couple of weeks, what we've looked at. And the first being that new kind of religious identity that united diverse peoples from all different uh, classes and ethnic backgrounds that united them as a new identity as the people of Jesus. Next, we looked at the promiscuous generosity of the church to the poor and the marginalized. In the third one, we looked at how the church was marked by a love for their enemies, non-retaliation, but forgiveness, compassion, and a conviction in the midst of it all. Fourth, we looked at how they were practically and holistically defending and walking in the sanctity of life by being a culture of life. And then last week, we looked at how they brought this sexual revolution. I mean, completely turning over the world's understandings about uh, men's sexuality in particular, but ideas about free will and consent. All of this was this revolution brought about by the early church. These distinctives that, again, emerged as a work of faith and a labor of love. It was out of their allegiance to Jesus as resurrected king. These five emerged. It was a labor of love for God and for their neighbor, for their enemy, for the vulnerable, and even for their own bodies, for their neighbors. This is what was motivating their work of faith and their labor of love. But in Paul's third distinctive, he remembers uh, one third little piece, one marking definition of, of what he understood the church in Thessalonica to be like. And it is the one that wrapped them all together. It is our final uh, peculiar distinctive that we're looking at today. And it is their steadfastness. Their steadfastness. Now, though steadfastness is not a word that you and I use on a regular basis, like that you could search steadfast in your like email or in your messages app and you're not gonna get any hits. We don't use this word at all. And yet it's a word that like we did a moment ago, many of us would like to be remembered as someone who is steadfast, who's faithful, someone who's enduring, perseverant. This is what we'd like to be remembered as, the kind of person who holds out in difficulty, without giving up or giving in. To be the kind of person that when people think of us, we go, man, that's a person who's able to cope mentally and, and emotionally as they go through and meet crises and they're able to return back to the center and continue to move forward. They are like this rubber band that as life stretches them, they strain without breaking and they're able to return back to their foot. They, they they, there's a resilience there. It's what Edmund, uh, Edwin Friedman in his uh, book back in 1997, The Failure of Nerve, he coined as being a non-anxious presence. A steadfast presence that doesn't get caught up in the anxiety of the age, but is able to carry a presence of non-anxiety. What Nassim Nicholas Taleb took a, st a step further when he coined the phrase anti-fragile. To be anti-fragile is to be a sort of person or system that doesn't just resist shocks, but it actually... Uh, it doesn't just stay the same under the pressures. It gets better because of them. It gets better because of the strain, because of the challenge. It's not just what, you know, doesn't kill you, makes you strong. Like that's the kind of, but it's an anti-fragile system. More than resilient, someone that, that, that even conflict and trials and difficulties makes you into something greater. We all desire to be remembered as a 
person of steadfast character, as a non-anxious presence, as a, a person of anti-fragile nature, as uh, described as, you know, kind of that, like, that chumbawamba spirit. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? I get knocked down, but I get up again. Right? Some of you guys, it's like, I just showed my age. Some of you, either being really young or really old uh, for different people in the room. Some of you guys just need to listen to tub thumping, and that's okay. Others of you will pray for your salvation. We all desire to be that kind of a person, to have that kind of, man, that resilience. And yet it, it's so difficult for us to find. As we look over ourselves, as we look out into our neighbors, it doesn't seem to be much steadfastness going around. Like this is personally for me. So there's a personality kind of like typing test thing that's called the Enneagram. It's really helpful in giving language to stuff, but it's also like within like Christianity become like a Christian horoscope now. Um, and so we're rejecting that side of it. Uh, but all the same of it is, uh, it's actually really helpful. It gives language. So all that to say, my personality type is the one. Any ones in here? Woo! All my ones were here. So the one, uh, my personality type and, and some others in the room is what they would de- describe as like the reformer. And so the virtues of the reformer is we're, we're ethical. We prioritize and value integrity. We can be a change agent for good. All like, you're like, you read that and you're like, all right, like I'll wear that as a sticker. And then it moves into the vices and the primary vice of the, you know, type one is, is non-resilient like a lack of resilience. So I read like steadfastness of hope and I'm like, that is like the one thing that apparently I am incapable of getting or at least very, very hard to get. So personally, some of us maybe are just prone to non-resilience, but even culturally, like even before 2020, sociologists were identifying the fragility and lack of resilience being seen among the population, specifically among the younger generation. Like there's just something different that's happening within us, like a fragi- an inability to get bumped and keep moving. But things just, we're just, we just crack a little bit easier. We're just a little bit more resilient, a little less resilient, a little more strained. And that was just that was before 2020, y'all. And on the other side of 2020, what is it? Anxiety and fragility, exhaustion, fear, resignation, burnout. This is like the, the normalized status of our day and age. Like I, I was on the way here this morning and you know, you, you have all of like the bus stop, like little like, you know, advertisements. And so it's movies or it's real estate or whatever, or, you know, the one by, by my house is, is, uh, is, is a, gi- a giant condom for STIs. Like that's, this is the city we live in. And so I'm waiting at Overland and we're on our way and it's just one that's like feeling overwhelmed. And it's like, this is, this is the age, this is the new age that we live in. An epidemic of anxiety, as sociologists put it. On the other side of 2020, this is the normalized status that we live in. It's not one of resilience and steadfastness, but fragility and anxiety. And this is due in part to our lives within what Edwin Friedman, talked about him a moment ago, identified back in 1997. That we live in what he identified as being a chronically anxious system. A chronically anxious system. You'll see it behind me. Over his career, Edwin Friedman identified these five elements of a chronically anxious system. And these are true in a family unit. This is true in marriages, in church communities, in your workplace. This is true in a nation state at large. And any institution or gathering of people can be be, uh, guilty of being a a chronically anxious system. And so just to tease these out, why are we all so non-resilient? We're living in this sort of a system, shaped by swimming in this kind of a system. 
And so the first uh, marker, the first element of a chronically anxious system is a predisposition towards reactivity rather than response. Reactivity is where instead of me seeing things, what's going on in the world and responding to them, I am constantly in an upheaving of my emotional state being reactive to everything. Like this is your newsfeed. This is your Instagram. This is where you live is one of reactivity, largely shaped by a 24-7 news cycle that constant, there is always something to be reacting to. And so every single one of us, we always feel there's something to be outraged about or overwhelmed by or anxious about or stressed about or speaking against or speaking to. So you live in a constant uh, rhythm of reactivity. And out of that, the anxiety becomes so overwhelming that then we move into hurting instinct, which is where because of the anxiety, there's safety in numbers. And so we group up and around like-minded people who think like and see the world like we do, because within that, we can alleviate our anxiety by feeling a little bit more safe. And so this is a mob mentality that then comes about. And this is what happens with, I mean, this is, this is, this is your aunt and uncle's, their Facebook page. This is their Facebook feed, where people get caught up in a, a, a hurting instinct of the internet that gives them a feedback loop for their reactivity, not moving anything further, but simply just repeating everything out. But then having at least people who think like me and see the world like I do, I can feel a little less anxious. Once you get a group together, now we move towards blame displacement where we see the problems of the situation, not as any responsibility or autonomy of ourselves, but simply as victim and the oppressor over on that side. And this doesn't happen just within racial dynamics. This can happen all over the place. This happens at work. We all over here, it's the boss's fault. We have no responsibility. Or or within an unhealthy family system, uh, we've got, you know, these siblings over here and it's the problem is mom or the problem is that that, that, that sibling. A chronically anxious system appears all over the place. And so blame displacement comes. And now because one is viewed as purely victim and the other is the opposer, now you get to what's called a, a gridlock of being able to have any fruitful renewal. Because now, as long as I have no responsibility and it's purely on you and you see me the other way, you're incapable of having any renewal. This then moves towards uh, the fourth, which is a quick fix mentality where because of a low threshold of pain and the ability to commit to the long-term work in a complicated system, we then go for silver bullet answers with the simplistic, the easy answers. Oh, there's this problem. The answer is this one simple thing for this huge complicated issue. Once again, normally playing within that blame displacement. And as you have enough of this going on, what ends up happening then is undifferentiated leadership, which is leaders within that system then begin to, to just mirror the reactivity and the anxiety of the people. They don't lead, but they play a reactive role mirroring the unhealth of the system and most often placate to the most unhealthy members of the community. This is like, this is, this is politics right now undifferentiated leaders that are able to go in the midst of all this, this is where we're going, but they're always playing to the most unhealthy and the loudest in the group. This happens at work. This happens in homes. This happens in in our church if we're not careful. And so here's the whole point. Friedman's elements right here. I just want to give a reason to why, why is steadfastness so difficult for us? And I want to not relieve you of responsibility of moving forward, but at least give language to why it feels so, why you feel so fragile. You are swimming in a system that is constantly pulling you towards reactivity, constantly pulling you towards grouping you with people who think like you and then begin to start blame display. And the whole system runs up all over again. 
See, to be a person that's able to find steadfastness, to be a non-anxious presence, anti-fragile, resilient in our moment, in this moment, is peculiar as all get out. As peculiar as our care for the poor, our enemy love, as peculiar as our sexual ethic and our care for vulnerable, this is about just as peculiar in our day and age as well. So peculiar that many of us go, man, I would love to be like that, but I'm not. And yet, in 1 Thessalonians 1, This is one of the three defining traits Paul gives for this community. That amid struggles and and difficulties and suffering, unlike what we're facing in this moment, different, but, 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 uh, but they're still finding in the midst of struggles and suffering, in the midst of doubts and difficulties, in the midst of a, a moment that's similar but quite different to ours, that they're able to have a resiliency here. One of the top three things that I don't, if you ask any, everybody in the room to describe Ryan in three words, none of you, I promise, would come up with steadfast and resilient. I, I don't think that many of us would, many of you, if you really think through it, would people define me as a resilient, non-anxious kind of person? I don't think many of us would find that others would define us that way. Heck, that we would describe ourselves that way. And yet for Paul, the Thessalonian church has it. So where did their endurance come from? Where could it come for us? How were they able to become a non-anxious, anti-fragile, perseverant community? Luckily, we don't have to look very far. It's the next two words. What is it? The prepositional phase, a steadfastness of hope. That enduring perseverance that they found, that non-anxious presence, that anti-fragility was what? Not a resilience of determination. It was not a a, a steadfastness of grit. It was not a a presence and a posture of stubbornness, each of those are a recipe for burnout. There are some of you here that, that have equated steadfastness in the gospel with, with, a, with a, just a, a, a stubbornness. And, it, and you feel burnt out for that very reason. You're trying to walk within the, 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 the way of Jesus and within a commitment to this thing. And the thing that's guiding you is not a vision of hope, we're gonna talk about it in a second, but it's your own resolve. It's your own determination. It's your own stick to your own stubbornness. And you feel burnt out for this very reason. For them, it was not simply a resilience of grit or stubbornness, but as one translation puts it, and I love this, an endurance inspired by hope. An endurance that came from hope. Now, unlike steadfast, hope is a word that we use far more frequently, though quite differently in our age versus when Paul was writing in his. For Paul, writing in Greek, the word hope was the same word as expectation or anticipation. When they say hope, it's the same category as to expect something. So for us, we talk about, I I hope it rains today. And you think of like, you know, I'm not saying that for real. It's beautiful today. This is is an, an, an image Although uh, this is an analogy. So you think of a field that's like, foul, it's, it's, it, crops are beginning to die and the farmer looks out of the field and there's a desire that wells up within him and he says, I hope that it rains today. What that's motivated in is a, is a wish, a desire based on something that he needs. That's how we tend to use hope. We do that with like a raise. We look at the, you know, what we're going on in our lives out here and we go, man, I really wish I could get a raise. I hope I can get a raise. We use them synonymously. For Paul reading about expectation, anticipation, them to, look, to say, I hope it rains today would be looking at the gray clouds overhead. An expectation of what's going to happen, not just simply the desire. 
or you know, to use the, the, the raise analogy, it's not simply to look at you know, uh, the cost of living in Los Angeles and go, man, I hope I get a raise. It's to look at you know, what, what markers were given by your boss for the last quarter and you know, what expectations are there. And you go, man, I've met all of these. I hope I get a raise because there is some expectation based off what was set before me. Now, I, I detail this to say Christian hope is an expectation for what's to come that's grounded in reality. Not simply well wishes, not simply optimism, not simply a pie in the sky, things will work out, well wishing, but grounded in reality. And for Paul, it's the reality of what he says right after his steadfastness of hope. He says what? In our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian hope is grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that Paul does this here. He doesn't just say uh, steadfast hope in Jesus or steadfast hope in Jesus Christ or in our Lord Jesus, but he does in our Lord Jesus Christ. He adds these two titles on either sides of Jesus's name, total Bible nerd moment. But when Paul does this throughout his writings, this is when he wants to underline and hit on the resurrected and reigning nature of who Jesus is. When he, he gets like both of the titles in there. He's like, it's not just Jesus. It's not just Lord Jesus. It's Jesus, like Lord Jesus Christ. He just loads them all up. Trying to get you to see what's our hope in is in the resurrected and reigning nature of Jesus. And so it's for this reason that whenever I read hope in my New Testament nowadays, I try to bring this uh, definition to mind. You'll see it behind me, that Christian hope is a vision for the future based on a victory of the past that brings vigor or strength for the present. Christian hope is a vision for the future based on a victory of the past that brings strength and endurance to the present. And for the Christian, that victory of the past is Easter. It is the resurrection of Jesus. And so steadfastness that the church had of Thessalonica and throughout, of Alex Menos, was an ethic of Easter, in that it was the only right and true way to live on the other side of the empty tomb. If, if Jesus really got up from the dead, then, then steadfastness and commitment to him is the only right way to live. And Alex Semenos reminds us that, that the distinctives we looked at a moment ago were seen as different and dangerous, as, as offensive and attractive to their world and continue to be today. And so they will be challenged and it will, will require you to have an endurance in the way of Jesus if you're going to find this kind of a commitment. This is what was key. As good as those other five are that we've looked at, this is the one that carried the church through the first 300 years. If they had the other ones, but they didn't have endurance, it wouldn't have amounted to much. But it was the endurance that turned things over. This is why they made it over 300. They overturned the Roman world and the world as we know it. But here's the rub at least for me. I, I say, you know, Christian hope, yeah. I, I have the vision for the future that's based on the victory of the past of what Jesus has done. So where's my present resilience? You, you, for those of you here, you identify, do you feel that? Yeah, resurrection, amen, hallelujah, all the like applause. And, and so, yeah, and I, I have it based in that. It's my vision for the future and it's a, grounded in the past. But you go, man, do I feel fragile as I'll get out. So where's the drop? As Paul moves into verses four through five, this week I've just been reflecting on these words of Paul. He's, he's continuing to remember the church in Thessalonica, but man, these little four, uh, how could we call, call them? These four experiences of the hope that inspires endurance has served as a very helpful audit for my own, where's the lack of resilience coming from? 
And so I wanna spend a little bit of time right now just going through these four to kind of serve as an audit. For those of us, all of us here that we would agree, I don't feel steadfast. Non-resilient is, you know, that's like my Instagram bio. This is, this is who I am. Where is that gap? If I do believe in the resurrection, if I do believe in new creation, and I, I, this, where's the present vigor that these four things in verses four through five can be helpful? First, in verse four, Paul says, for we know, brothers, loved by God. The resurrection provides a new identity as loved by God. This experience of the everlasting, as Romans uh, chapter eight says, this everlasting love of the God who, I, who identifies to his people as Abba Father. That there's an endurance that comes from when they have an identity that's situated in the everlasting love of God. That my identity as radically loved by God is the source for a steadfastness because nothing, as Romans 8 continues, nothing can separate us from that. And so the question then, if Paul is seeming to say that, that part of a steadfast hope is a, an experience of this new identity as loved by God, then it's worth considering that maybe my fragility in life is due to a fragile identity that I carry. Maybe for some of you, at the deepest root of who am I is an answer of a question about power, it's about approval from others. It's about comfort. It's about control. That at the center point of your identity of who I am is something that is actually quite fragile. Actually something that can be taken very easily or maybe has been taken. And your, your brittleness, your, your uh, rigidity that you feel internally within your spirit is because of the fact that you have an identity that is not lasting enough, that is not resilient and deep and strong enough for all that life can throw at it. And see, endurance comes as we find ourselves having an, an identity that is secure, that no matter what I go through, no matter what others call me, no matter what others do, that whenever I go through, that there is an identity at the core of me that cannot be touched by any experience in this life. An everlasting love, again, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And so endurance comes to this because, to go back to Edwin Friedman, when you have an identity that's rooted at the deepest level, your deepest sense of self is loved by God, child of God, adopted, loved by the Father. This is the deepest sense of who you are. This is how you get what Friedman called a well-differentiated identity. You have an identity that you're able to move into a chronically anxious system and not be shaken by it because it's not an it can't get to the deepest sense of who you are. But when you have a weak identity and you go into a chronically anxious system, it becomes very easy very quickly to then begin to pick up your little mirror neurons and you start moving towards the anxiety of the system. To have this kind of identity is grounding and necessary. And so for some of you that feel fragile in this moment, the question would be, is it possible that when I think about the deepest sense of who I am, there is an answer that is far too fragile? The second that Paul gives as he moves on from being loved by God in verse four is he says that he has chosen you. For Paul, the resurrection provides a new vocation. That is a new calling over your life as chosen by God. When most of us think of the fact that I'm chosen by God, we tend to think of this as being like salvation language. Like God chose me for team Jesus. But what Paul regularly uses the chosen language for is to be chosen for a task, to be chosen for a mission, to be chosen for a, a sort of thing. 
set apart and distinguished for something. And so to be chosen by God means that I've been chosen by God, not just to, to be loved by him, but to be sent by him to bring new creation, resurrection life into a, a system, a world of death, a chronically anxious system. That is what I have been chosen for. And so I can say personally, you know, going back to, to my own like makeup and, and need for this in my life, is my fragility so often is due to my own fragile expectations. That I have expectations for a sort of life. I've, I want to choose a sort of life for myself and for others. I want expectations for the church and how it should be. Expectations for how the world should see me. And what it means to be chosen by God that ultimately then ends up only leading to messiness and difficulty and strain and chaos. And when I find that then, I, I break apart. Because I've held out an expectation for my life that the world is incapable of offering. When we find a resilience is when we begin to realize that what it means to be chosen by God is that my life and the calling of God for my life is not somewhere else. That it's not, there's, there is no grass is only greener for the way of Jesus in your life. But you, who you are, your, your work, your address, your, your, your gender, your life, your, your trials, your difficulties, your singleness, your infertility, whatever it is that you're moving through right now, the thing that feels like it's ripping at the very sense of life shouldn't be this way. The chosenness of God means not that God has chosen those things inherently for you, but God has chosen you in the midst of those, that those challenges, those difficulties are the very place where he wants to work. And so endurance can be found then in receiving a chosenness over your life that, you know, like Mordecai to Esther, you can hear, for such a time as this, God has chosen you. For such a life as yours, God has chosen you. So the endurance then comes and going, man, that my life is not something to give up on or get away from. This is the very place. And yes, all of the challenges and difficulties that come, but this is where God is at work with in the world, through me. The third that Paul identifies is in resurrection providing us with a new story in the gospel of God. I love that Paul understands the gospel not simply just as the word of preaching, but as the power that's in us, the, how the Holy Spirit is guiding us, and the gospel is the conviction, the assurance that's sitting within us. To find a new story. And so again, as we're auditing ourselves with Paul's words here, is that for some of us, our fragility in this world is the fact that we're living out of a different story. We have a fragile story that we're walking within. When you think about the narrative of your life, who you are, and this is tied up a little bit to identity, but when you think about the life that you're living, the reality of your fragility and your lack of resilience might be the fact that you're just living within a fragile story. Some word that's been spoken over you, some, to use Paul's language here, a power that's at work within you, some other spirit that's guiding you, some other conviction that you're, that you're leading, you're moving out of. For some of us, you just have, a, you, have a, you have some other story. That yes, the gospel, you know, you check off, yeah, resurrection. But at the end of the day, there is, a, there is some narrative framework for your life that you fit within. And it is the story that's guiding you. It's the power at work with you. It's the, spirit, it's the word over you. And your fragility is, it's just not, it's not a, a substantive story. It's not big enough for your life. And so steadfastness, endurance is received when we begin to move and lean into the story of God. When I begin to find that the story of creation and redemption, of exile, when, the, when my life begins to start using the language of the gospel, of death and resurrection, 
of service and taking up a cross, that that's when I begin to find endurance because my story is no longer just my story. It's the very story of God in the world. And then fourth is our belonging in the family of God as a source for our endurance because the resurrection makes us a family. As Paul said, we read, you know, and he said he refers to in verse four, for we know brothers or brothers and sisters, it can be translated, loved by God, that he has chosen. If you are with us in Ephesians, then you'll, then you'll know this. Paul, all of the yous here are not singular, but they're the, the y'alls. Paul says this whole work of God's steadfast hope at work within a community is not within individuals, but it's y'all. It's brothers and sisters. It's y'all walking in this. And so Paul remembers the resurrection, our endurance is grounded in this family life of the church. And for some of you, your, your source of fragility, the lack of resilience that you feel, the brokenness of moving through a, a, a brittle existence in this life, is, is you're, just, you're just simply too isolated. You've, you, you've developed a privatized faith, one that is self-focused and individualized. And, and faith was never meant to work that way. The resurrection was never meant to save you into that sort of an existence, but one as a, as a family member, as a brother and as a sister. And so endurance is found when we remember that this steadfast, the hope that we have is a team sport. The saying of, you know, if you want to go fast, you know, go alone. If you want to go far, go together is absolutely true within the work of, of the church. Is, is the fact that God has united us as a church means so much about what it means for the mission of God in this world. A messy community of folks like you and me, as one pastor referred to the church as a three-legged dog, and I think that's so good. The fact that God would, would unite us as a messy family, as the way that he's bringing out his work within the world, means that God is far more concerned with a church that goes far than a church that goes fast. And so the mission of the church is, is leaning into that kind of family work. And so with these four right here behind me, whether that's right now in this moment, you feel like your resilience, you're at a stretching and a straining point. Or for in years to come, when you find yourself here, my hope is that these would come back to you as Paul's invitation, not as him chastising, not as him break beating you, brow beating down, you know, get yourself, get your vocation together. But in the midst of your feeling strained and pressured and, and going, where is my resurrection resilience? That Paul would ask, what, what identity is at the deepest source of who you are right now? What, what vocation, what, what, what do you feel like God chose you for? What, what story are you living in? And, and what is your participation within the family of God or lack thereof? If you're feeling stretched, Paul would say, where? What, what, what would you, how would you answer each of these things? I can tell you my own time in this this week is I just, I have found that chosen by God and that expectations is 100% the lack of my resiliency. Is for all of my like, you know, virtuous, like change agent for good. I have a, we, I'm prone to a perfectionism with my life, an expectation that things are gonna go perfectly if I push all the right levers and bumpers and life does not work that way. You just tell Alex Amenos that. <laughs> He's worshiping God and doing all that he can to serve the, the church in Thessalonica, doing all they can to worship God. Expectations, man, if we worship God, if God's like the creator of the universe, this should go pretty well for us, right? And yet met with ostracism and opposition, we have to, for me, I've had to, I need to continue on a daily basis to reframe my expectations for life. And this comes not just to what it means to be a Christian. This is like being a dad, being a friend. Like my expectations are just all over the place. But I think in us thinking through which of those four we might need to lean into, I, 
we cannot underestimate the importance of that last one, of new belonging, the communal nature. That if, if you are feeling resilient and strained and stretched, maybe even before going to those other four, I would recommend starting with the final one because for Paul, that's central. The communal nature, that team effort work in our steadfast hope is what for Paul is the central pulling point of how we make it through this life together. As you move into verses, uh, the back half of chapter five, or excuse me, the back half of, of verse five, in then down into verse seven, you see that Paul understands the steadfastness of hope that we have is, is not just a team sport. Your steadfastness and my endurance is actually a relay race. Paul, notice how he does this. He, he reflects on, in, in the end of verse five, his example to the Thessalonian church. You knew what kind of people we were among you. And, and then what happened? You guys began to mirror and, and you followed our example. And then what ends up happening is now they become an example to all of these churches in the surrounding region. Do you see the relay race nature of Paul handing down the hope and the love and the faith of the gospel to the church in Thessalonica and then they carry it and then they're handing it down to others? For Paul, there is a sanctified herding instinct, to go back to Edwin Friedman's model, a sanctified herding instinct that, that our, mirror, our mirror neurons develop an endurance, a sanctified work of the Holy Spirit for long-term endurance that comes as we are receiving the gift of the endurance of those before us, and then we are reflecting that to those around us. And that this is vital for endurance. This is why isolation is just antithetical to the way of Jesus. And so if you're feeling strained, if you're in moments when you're feeling tired and non-resilient and fragile, once again, I think Paul's question would be, who, whose example are you leaning into and who are you receiving from? And then also, who are, you, who are you reflecting that to? Who in your life are you genuinely modeling the hope, love, and faith of the gospel to others in? I can just tell you, my, the, the best thing for me over the past few months is I've been reading Pastor Eugene Peterson's biography, A Burning in My Bones. Um, man, it's so good. Uh, and I just read like, a, like, like half a chapter at night before bed. And it's his, his reflections on long-term pastoral work in like a really, really rough season of his life. I just keep rereading this one chapter. And man, it's, what, what that does within me is instead of defeating me, there's an endurance that rises up with me as I'm looking at the example of someone else. That happens with so many of you. There's, there's members of our church in here that as I've gotten coffee or lunch with you and I begin to talk with you in the way, your own endurance and faithfulness in the way of Jesus, it does something to me. And so the hope is the church becomes a gift of provoking endurance of one another, is committing to each other in this relay race. And this was the pattern that marked the entirety of Paul's ministry. For Paul, he understood this is, what, this is what pastors do. This is what church does. This is what Christians do. We are receiving and we are reflecting towards one another this model of endurance. And so it was a bit of a little bit like break in this sermon, trailer, teaser for where we're going over the summer. Uh, next week, we're beginning our next series out of Peculiar called Endure. Uh, we're looking at the letter of 2 Timothy. Second Tim, woo, there's one of you. Somebody likes Second Timothy, you're with me. Uh, Second Timothy, man, has been a letter that's been a, a source of oh, uh, life, my own endurance um, for a for, uh, better part of, of a decade or so now. And uh, man, it, and like Isaac alluded to in the announcements, this, this series came out of a prayer night back in February 
when I was praying through, we were going to do the life of Abraham. We're going to come back to him at some point. But uh, we were just praying together and there were multiple people that started praying, either them not knowing it, allusions to 2 Timothy, or literally reading like prayers from 2 Timothy. And I just like wrote that down and began praying. And I was like, this is where we're supposed to go after this. And really seeing this as a continuation of what we're doing today. Like the final ethic that we're looking at is what? The steadfast hope. And as you look at the letter of 2 Timothy, it is the Apostle Paul's final letter, a call to endure to a young pastor Timothy, young pastor named Timothy, who poor Timothy is going through cultural pressures, church dysfunction, a culture of both pastors and people within the church that are, um, for lack of a better word, deconstructing the faith and walking away. They're either giving up with moral uh, failures or they're just like giving away the Christian faith by peddling a false gospel. And he's facing watching his church that feels like it's falling apart, fellow pastors as they're walking away, and just the suffering of just following Jesus in his life. And it's left him fearful, anxious, and non-resilient. There are times that I wish the Bible spoke to the situations that I'm going through. (laughs) Only Pastor Isaac was the first to laugh on that one. And so this letter of 2 Timothy is, is Paul's like Papa Paul, fatherly call. It's his last letter before he is put to death by the Roman Empire. And it is him in his most personal and pastoral as he calls for Timothy repeatedly to endure, to receive his example, and now to reflect that to the church in the city of Ephesus. And so I am so excited for this series as we continue in this. Um, we're going to be kicking it off next week as uh, Pastor Lorenzo actually kicks off his sabbatical. And so to kick it off next week, we have our friend Mike Portland from Reality LA that's going to be coming over to kick it off. And then Isaac will be the next one. And so that means I am going to have two weeks off. Um, I, I realized this week that I haven't had a Sunday off since February. And so um, Ecclesiastes in peculiar was really fun. Uh, I'm going to go uh, sit by a pool and uh, celebrate, celebrate uh, my 10-year anniversary. So, yeah, sorry, that was weird. Whee! It's so fun. Uh, so, okay, back to First Thessalonians. There's the commercial done. Second Timothy is where we're going. I am so excited. Uh, the resource page is going to be updated in the weekend. I'm doing all this stuff because I won't be here next week. Uh, that'll be updated this week. Um, actually, pending this is, so the recommended resources for this whole series are all a bunch of Christian biographies of other old saints who have done like an incredible job following Jesus faithfully. So no, no theology, but a theology of life uh, given to us by some of those. And so you'll see there's a biography on Paul, Eugene, missionaries from all over the world past. It's just uh, people that have just been faithful. So uh, you can check that out this week. But back to 1 Thessalonians. Let's close out uh, the series of Peculiar, what we've been in since Easter. Paul reminds us that the faith that you and I are walking in, this endurance that we have, is not just a relay race from Paul to the Thessalonian church, like to like, you know, Macedonia, Achaia, and that relay race has been going on for 2,000 years, and now we're in a part of it. Paul reminds us who was there running this race even before Paul. What does he say right there in verse 6? What does he say? You became imitators of what? Us and of the Lord imitators of the Lord. If there is one summary for what my hope has been this entire series has been the the distinctive way of Jesus, what we've looked at over these past few weeks, not just the endurance, but the, the, the uniting of diverse people, the care for the poor, his enemy love, his care for the vulnerable and the the, the dignity of every single image bearer, the value of our human body, that all of those things were simply us walking in those, the early church walking in those were, yes, implications of the Easter, but they were simply being imitators of Jesus. And so Paul 
calls us to be imitators of the Lord, which serves as a great close to this series because we opened with a command just like it on Good Friday. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two, once again say, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, speaking of the the faithful followers of Jesus that have gone before, that relay race mentality is right there. He said, let us then in our own part of the race, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, steadfastness of hope, the race that is set before us. And we do this by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising or literally thinking lightly of the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the hope that inspires your endurance and mine is found as we look not to ourselves and yes, at some level to one another, but first and foremost, by looking to Jesus by setting our eyes on his endurance as his own running of his race, where he both finished and perfected the faith, as Hebrews says, that that he provided for us through his resurrection and through his cross. That is where your identity comes from, as being loved by God. It's through the work of the cross, of being chosen by God. That is where you become blood-bought people in the words of of, of what um, uh, Peter writes. The story that you and I have now has become true. The gospel is the new story for your life. is true through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the family that's been unified is one that was made through the cross. And Jesus says, he, he, or Hebrews says, Jesus endured this. That phrase, thinking lightly of the shame of the cross or despising it. What this means is that Jesus, as he looked at on the other side of the cross, what he would bring you and I, a new identity, a new vocation, a new family, and a new story, he disregarded the peculiar nature of salvation through crucifixion. He disregarded the peculiarity of a salvation through the one the world would call, again to quote the Roman author, a crucified jackass. Jesus looked at that and said, the king of the universe is willing to be identified as that for the sake of you and I. He ran that race of enduring in the peculiar nature of being a follower of of God, of being obedient to God so that we might follow him in his leadership. And so that peculiar nature is strange and it might seem like it's on the wrong side of history. It might seem like it's, what, it's challenging, it's difficult to us. It brings tension. But here's the thing. If the resurrection is actually true, there's a past victory here that now presents you and I with a vision for the future and now gives us a, a strength, an endurance, a vigor for your and I present lives. So the invitation is to lean into that, to join Alex Amenos and the great cloud of witnesses in a steadfast, resilient, non-anxious, anti-fragile, enduring life of worship to our God. And so these are the distinctives that have marked the people of Jesus. And the prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would meet us and continue to shape us into that sort of a community. Not simply just so that we can change the world or turn, you know, to do what they did in 300 years, but so that we can be faithful, so that we can endure in the way of Jesus, reflecting him to be who he's called us to be. Let's pray.